Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get more accountability and better discussions. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten to enjoy the great Word of God. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. And we're starting Zoom groups uh, at various times, and you can always jump into one. Just send me a message on Facebook, and I'll get you connected to that. We're in the book of Genesis for the radio show, a great book. My goal with the show is the same as the book's to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. Please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. In our study of Genesis, we're continuing to work through the life of Abraham and getting toward the end of that. If you're interested in previous shows on the life of Abraham or Genesis or Revelation or other books that we've done, you can check out podcasts on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. On today's show, we're going to be in Genesis 21 and 22. We'll cover the birth of Isaac, Ishmael and Hagar being sent away, and then we'll start into the wonderful climactic story in the life of Abraham, the binding of Isaac. Lord, help us to open your scriptures today and learn more about your character and to understand what you want for us and from us in the days to come. Thank you for all that you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, this station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 21 and 22 today, and we'll start with 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him, When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So verses 1 and 2 opens with the Lord being gracious to Sarah. She becomes pregnant. And all of this is in fulfillment of promises, which are mentioned twice, verses 1 and 2. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but at least in the English, I really like what the NIV has here, where it says the Lord was gracious to her, and the Lord did for her what he had promised. And those two prepositional phrases, I think, are really interesting, right? God does things to us, and ultimately, he does things for us. It's a simple but important point theologically. When God does things for us, it's a lot easier to understand and and believe in the things he's doing to us. Now, all of this book ends with the promises to Abraham and Sarah in chapter 18. In between, we've had sexual sin, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters, Abimelech and Sarah, all of them ending in death, infertility, or shenanigans. In a nutshell, what's been achieved here? We have God-given son through God's agenda and methods in God-given timing. It's not Abraham and Sarah in their own strength anymore. This is all from God's grace. 
Hebrews 11, 11 and 12, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Certainly reminiscent of Ephesians 3.20, speaking of God, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Again, verse 1 calls God gracious, and God is gracious to them despite their age. That's what the text gives us. But then if we read in context, then it's also despite their disobedience in chapter 20, the doubts and the laughter of chapter 18, at least on Sarah's part, and the Hagar plan back in chapter 16. God is working despite these deficiencies. And even though God has promised these things already, it's still considered grace. I think that's interesting for me, at least, that when I commit to something and do it, I don't usually consider that a grace. I just consider it a duty. And so, in a sense, God has, you know, is just simply fulfilling a duty here, but it is still considered grace, and it still is grace. It's also interesting that Sarah is emphasized so much here. And at one level, that's to be expected. I mean, she's the one who's pregnant with the promised child. But the text at this point has really emphasized Abraham more so. And Abraham has not treated her particularly well. So as we read this, we're hopeful that the signals that she is now fully seen as his wife now. Leon Cass pursues this angle and says, both her childless condition and his behavior toward her in Egypt and Gerar with Abimelech and with Hagar attest to their less than married condition. So long as he is willing to treat her as a sister or as a seedbed, Sarah remains barren. Only when he is prepared to look upon her simply as a wife does she in fact become one in the full and proper sense. And then to the bigger picture, Cass continues, for the purely natural deeds of having children any woman will do, such as Hagar. But because human procreation means rearing as well as bearing, the naturally loose relations of male and female must be transformed and fixed by the legal or conventional singular relation of husband and wife, that is, by marriage. Woman as wife means a long-term partner for rearing the next generation, or in other words, for transmitting the way of life that is the spiritual lifeblood of the family and the nation. So yes, they've been husband and wife for some time, but there's a different level happening here, right? With the birth of the child, with parenting, with the next generation in mind, and with Abraham's uh, different view of Sarah, there's something else going on here, uh, a deeper level of marriage, if you will. Verses 3 and 4 mention Isaac's name and his circumcision and Abraham's obedience. And so in this regard, Abraham and Isaac are quite different. Abraham chooses to leave his family of origin. Isaac comes into a world with the covenant already laid out for him from the beginning. He's the first in the family to receive the sign of the covenant while an infant. So we've talked about Abraham's remarkable decision. Isaac is born into a much better position, but will it work? Will the faith be transmitted from father to son? Will Isaac's heart match the sign that's been given here? Will the internals match the external? As Leon Cass puts it, this is what Isaac's birth is supposed to mean. Whether he will come to accept its meaning becomes the challenge of his life. Verse 5's reference to Abraham's age of 100 years old leads then to Sarah's comments in verses 6 and 7, basically, who would have thunk it? Who would have believed this? Again, the reference to laughter, which we saw in last week's reading, 
And think about Isaac's name. It means laughter. So this would be a daily reminder to her and Abraham of her limited faith in that moment and God's faithfulness through the years to finally deliver on this promise. And it's a chance to glorify God in the strange circumstances that he causes and allows. Verse 6 is about the child from her perspective. Verse 7 brings in Abraham and his perspective. Last comment here is to recognize that with the age of 100, this tells us we're 25 years after Genesis 12 and the promises we saw there. Leon Cass says this is the first concrete evidence of the veracity of God's promise that's finally fulfilled. And this also points to the genius of Abraham's faith that for 25 years, he really does not have a ton to go on aside from the encounters with God and the promises of God. Matthew Henry says this is the long looked for which comes at last. It's a type of Christ, that seed which the holy God had so long promised and holy men had long expected. All right, so that takes us to verses 8 through 10. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So the catalysts for this part of the story are the weaning and the party that goes with that. Now, weaning would have occurred at an older age than we're used to, and that culture ages two to three. And perhaps it's Isaac's growing independence, which is the catalyst for Sarah's concerns. Ishmael, who, by the way, is not named in this part of the story at all, is a teenager or a young man now, so he'd be 15 to 16 years old. And the NIV renders the key term here, mocking, which includes many possibilities, which I'll talk about in just a second, but all of them connect to a wordplay on Isaac's name, which again means laughter. So there's a relationship in the Hebrew between the word here and Isaac's name. So something seems to be happening there. That could be innocuous, that mocking is just meaning, you know, at play with Isaac and Sarah is badly overreacting. It could be that he's laughing at Isaac. Again, the word play on his name, which means laughter. It can refer to sexual activity, which would be really troubling. And that would also be interesting in light of the trio of stories about sex in Genesis 18 through 20 and the problems that their parents have been having. And given Isaac's name, it might mean that he was Isaacing it. In other words, he's trying to play Isaac's role as the key son. But whatever it is, Sarah doesn't like it. Now, is she an overprotective parent? Which is possible, even to the point of idolatry. That's a theme we'll pick up again in chapter 22. You'd hope that she'd be celebrating this moment in joy, and instead she seems insecure or defensive. Even if it's a problem, it's not clear at all that she's handling it well. Now, before we judge her too harshly, we've got to think about context. We weren't there, and the text doesn't give us much. Is it at the party for Isaac? Maybe he's undermining the attention that Isaac should be receiving at this party. What was the relationship between Isaac and Ishmael at this point? Were they too close? Whatever that would look like. Is Sarah worried about Abraham and, and how he treats Ishmael? Maybe she sees Ishmael as a, a real competitor for the inheritance and the blessings. Cass points to the pedagogical blessing from the fuzziness of the sparse text. He says, quote, it compels the reader to think about just what ought to outrage a mother on behalf of her child and how she should go about protecting him. 
Her prescription is banishment. We read that in verse 10. So this would explicitly disinherit Ishmael. Ironically, it parallels Israel's later call to be separate and set apart. And it is important for what follows in terms of faith in God's promises. This would entail Abraham having to separate himself from Ishmael and to rely on his toddler, rather than a young man, to be the vessel of the promise and the inheritance. And maybe Abraham's already there, but as we've talked about, he was quite fond of Ishmael. And so there may be something here where he's having a hard time putting Ishmael and Isaac in their proper places. As she's laying out the prescription in verse 10, she refers to Hagar and Ishmael as that slave woman and her son. First of all, this is not exactly promoting the human dignity and value of Hagar and Ishmael to refer to them in this way. It's possible to read this that she's identifying the problem, that it's really that it's not the proper son and there needs to be a proper placement of Isaac in regard to Ishmael. But again, it doesn't seem like she's handling the problem particularly well. In any case, what should have been a moment of joy and laughter has become bitterness for Sarah. Last comment here is that Abraham and Sarah are married in the fuller sense and in a deeper sense, I think, because of the events of the last few years in their marriage. But it's still not a well-ordered household, or we don't see evidence of that at this point. The last time we had this problem was chapter 16, and Abraham sided with Sarah, but quietly and passively acceded to her demands. This time, she insists that he get involved. So how will Abraham respond? It's going to be different this time. But we'll cover that after the break. In the meantime, please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we covered Genesis 21, 1 through 10, which is the birth of Isaac and the beginning of the story where Ishmael and Hagar are sent away. There's a party and uh, Sarah is not happy with something that happens and wants them driven out. So that takes us to verses 11 through 13. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So in verse 11, we're told that Abraham is distressed about Ishmael. When God responds in verse 12, notice that he adds Hagar to the mix. That probably tells us something. Now, why is he so distressed about Ishmael? Well, this is still his son and his son, not Sarah's son, but his son with Hagar. But this is not just any son. This is after waiting so long, right? As an old man, he has Ishmael. He's an older man with Isaac, but he was an old man when he had Ishmael. And then for 13 years, he thought he was the promised child. So we can infer that Ishmael was greatly loved by Abraham. So that makes this very difficult. In such a case, only God's will, not Sarah's demands, are going to satisfy Abraham here. This is very similar to the story in chapter 16, but he's not proceeding the same way. Is it because the stakes are higher that he knows this is the promised child? Or we also hope that he's learned some lessons from what happened in chapter 16. So this is not a legal question. It's an ethical or moral concern, and he's troubled by Sarah's response. Nahum Sarna says Abraham's distress would then not be over the legality of the act, but because of both fatherly love and moral considerations. I think God's response here surprises Abraham and 
us as well. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you. One reason for surprise is that hasn't been particularly good advice before and had gotten them in trouble previously when he had deferred to her back in chapter 16. Here he goes to God, who ironically points him back to Sarah. So God sides with Sarah's advice. That does not mean that he endorses her tone or her motives, but he is working to elevate Sarah here, which again has been a recurring theme throughout our study of Abraham's life, even though she's somewhat or deeply flawed in her approach throughout this story. The justification is given in the last part of this passage that, yes, Isaac will be blessed, of course, but Ishmael will also be blessed. God reiterates, yes, your offspring will be reckoned through Isaac. By the way, this passage is used by Paul in the Jews' failure to embrace Christ in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. But Ishmael will be taken care of as well. God has due regard for Ishmael in this passage, and that parallels what Abraham wants for his son as well. God's election of Isaac does not mean abandoning others, including Ishmael. With Isaac born, Sarai tries to marginalize Ishmael, who's no longer useful to her, but God still holds his covenant with Ishmael. Nahum Sarna says, Note God's delicate shift from Sarah's motivation to his own. The matriarch was solely interested in safeguarding the material status of her son. God is concerned with Abraham's posterity, with the fulfillment of the divine plan of history. I like what Patrick Henry Reardon says here as well. Whatever Sarah's reasons for expelling Hagar and Ishmael, God had his own reasons, and he permitted Sarah's plans to succeed in order for his own reasons to succeed. By their departure, Ishmael was able to become the father of a great people on the earth, a great people with us to this day. The other thing to note is that big picture This results in a well-ordered household. Sarah should have priority over Hagar. Isaac should have priority over Ishmael. Does not mean Hagar and Ishmael can be discarded, but that is the proper priority in this household. All right, verses 14 through 16. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. So verse 14 opens with Abraham's prompt obedience. You might inject a joke here about wanting to get Sarah off his case. It's interesting in the big picture that he's relinquishing Ishmael here, and he's going to have to relinquish Isaac in the next chapter. So we'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Verse 14, he only sends some food and water. That's vague. We don't know how much. Is it all they could carry? Is he trusting God to provide for them after God has made the promises? It seems like he's testing God, which is interesting. Sending them alone. There's no money, no donkey. Burton Vysotsky is really rough on Abraham here. He says, It would last long enough to get them out of his sight and out of his conscience. And I don't think that's justified, but it it does read uh, as a terrible verse, I think, that Abraham doesn't seem to be taken care of sufficiently, at least Ishmael and Hagar. This leads to verse 16, Hagar's desperation. Interesting because she forgets God's promises as well back in chapter 16 and doesn't even cry out to God which is interesting given, again, what we saw in chapter 16, verses 7 through 13, where God provided water, great promises, and instructions. God had approached her the first time, but I think we would expect more from her 
here. Matthew Henry observes, we are apt to forget former promises when present providences seem to contradict them, for we live by sense. So it's all good to uh, poke at Hagar's lack of faith, but we do the same thing, right? We, we receive promises from God in the past, and then we can't bank on them in a current difficult moment. And maybe Abraham and Sarah's spiritual failings are a stumbling block for her. In any case, the poor treatment of the Egyptian Hagar is an ironic reversal of Israel's future bondage in Egypt. And this tension continues to be lived out in the modern-day conflict of Judaism and Christianity with Islam as the sins of Father Abraham are revisited on the generations. The other thing that's odd here, I think, is Ishmael's dependence in verses 15 and 16 at the age of 15 and 16 on mom and maybe, hopefully, on God. Verse 17, we'll talk about him crying twice. So as a young man, you might expect more here from Ishmael. Does he lack mental toughness? Had he been babied by Abraham since he'd been an only child and previously thought to be the child? Or is this just a really tough situation for a young man, any young man to go through, including losing his father from his perspective. So we might expect more from Ishmael, but I think we can cut him some slack as well. Verses 17 through 21, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. A number of small observations here. Verse 17 mentions fear, and fear, of course, is the antithesis of faith. The senses are interesting here as well. Verse 17 mentions that she heard twice. And that parallels the crying twice that we talked about before. First of all, this is a telling pun on Ishmael's name, which meant, means, God hears. And it's a reminder to her, right, that that's what she named Ishmael. She can remember the events of chapter 16 where God heard her cries. And it's noteworthy that God responds to the boy's cry. The last time God saw Hagar is what the text tells us. And here it's hearing instead. Remember that Hagar's name in chapter 16 for God was, I have now seen the one who sees me. And so the senses have changed from seeing to hearing. In any case, all of this is emphasizing that God does not abandon Ishmael given the promises that have been made to him. In verse 19, notice that the angel opens her eyes to see the living water and to end the spiritual blindness. God's present supply will graciously provide for their needs. And so the angel in verses 17 through 19 comforts and rescues them with water, as had been done before in the previous story, chapter 16, verse 14. Verse 20 mentions the desert that seems to fulfill chapter 16, verse 12, where he'd be a wild donkey of a man in a wild place. And verse 20's reference to an archer seems strange, but it does connect back to the reference in verse 16 about being a bow shot away. So there's an interesting parallel there. Last observation comes again from Patrick Henry Reardon, and he notes that the biblical text tends to lose track of Hagar and Ishmael once they arrive in the Negev desert. The legends of the Arabs tell their own story of how far the mother and child reached in their journey, namely Mecca. The spring in verses 14 through 19, they identify as a spring of Zamzam found near the Kaaba at Mecca. 
Thus, Ishmael is credited with the founding of Mecca, which is a religious shrine vastly older than Islam. And finally, it's fitting that his wife should be Egyptian. Again, there's some irony here, the connection to Egypt as he is freed from his own slaver to Abraham and Sarah. We have an arranged marriage of a sort here. And again, it points to a mother's influence here, Hagar. Leon Cass says in this allegedly patriarchal text, the maternal influence is hardly slighted. Women matter, and good wives matter most. Now, Paul uses this text to great effect in Galatians to talk about legalism and submitting, not just following the law. We'll start in Galatians 4, 21 through 24. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Then verses 28 through 31, now you brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then one of the great verses in Galatians opens the next chapter. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Then in 5.13, Paul finishes the thought, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So Ishmael is born of the flesh, the ordinary way. Isaac is born of the promise. Ishmael is born of the bond, slave woman. Isaac's born of the free woman. Ishmael represents bondage to the law. Isaac represents freedom in Christ. And so in all of this, it also points to the conflict between the flesh or the sin nature and the spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 18, Paul continues his thought. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Paul does something similar, by the way, in Romans 8, 13 through 17. G. Campbell Morgan notes that when Isaac, the child of faith, was born, the son of the bondwoman mocked. And then Watchman Nee, Ishmael, as a picture of the flesh, was not cast out until after Isaac was born and weaned. It is no use preaching against flesh to unbelievers. They are flesh and they possess nothing else. There must be an Isaac, a new birth. When Isaac was recognized as the son, then Ishmael was cast out. So a great passage in its own right, crucial to the story we're reading here in Genesis, but tremendous applications to life in the spirit as Paul develops in Galatians. All right, a good place to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Spotify, Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first two segments today, we talked about the birth of Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael being sent away, chapter 21, verses 1 through 21. And last week in our coverage of Genesis 20 and 21's encounters between Abraham and and Abimelech, we covered the next passage, which is chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. So that takes us to chapter 22, which is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, one of the biggest as well, and one of the 
two or three biggest chapters in Abraham's life. So a bunch of things to say by way of introduction to this powerful and important story. First is its title. A lot of times it's called The Sacrifice of Isaac, but if you know the punchline, spoiler alert if you don't, he's not going to be sacrificed. So it's better called The Binding or maybe The Almost Sacrifice of Isaac. Big picture, Ishmael is now out of the way from chapter 21. So the stage is set for what God has promised and intends to see come about. But we have to figure out what else is going to happen along the way. And of course, chapter 22 is the pinnacle of that. This is the climactic event of Abraham's life. It's the last recorded time that God speaks to him, rounding out the set of seven visits that God has had with Abraham. And of course, the number seven is important biblically. The timing of it is interesting. One wonders if he could have answered this call earlier in his life. On the one hand, he was amazing back in chapter 12 with respect to faith. On the other hand, this is even more challenging. In any case, this chapter is an incredible display of faith from the father of faith and the father of Israel. And because it's such an incredible display of faith, it becomes then a very difficult story for us to fully comprehend. A great and classic book on this is Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, which is devoted to trying to understand how amazing this faith is. And there's so many ways in which we might try to water it down or explain it away. Kierkegaard is the one that I know of uh, that wrestles most fervently and effectively with what does it mean and what are the implications for us. Leon Cass puts it this way, no story in Genesis is as terrible, as powerful, as mysterious, as elusive as this one. It defies easy and confident interpretations. And despite all that I shall have to say about it, which turns out to be about 20 pages, it continues to baffle me. Of course, for Christians, one relatively easy angle to pursue is the way in which it points forward to Jesus Christ. I think the other way to think about the timing is that God has arranged Abraham's life so that this is the pinnacle in his walk with God and his education about God's ways. Now, let's think about the structure of Abraham's story for a minute and the parallels with chapter 12. Along with chapter 12, 1 through 3 in particular, these moments of faith, great faith, bracket his life in answering God's voice and calls. The parallels are amazing. Chapter 12, verse 1 talks about leaving and taking and then going, right? The leave and go that we talked about way back in chapter 12, verse 1 is paralleled here in chapter 22, verse 2. And both of them are to a destination or task not completely defined. The go forth is lek lekha, big phrase in Hebrew, but only times used in the Bible are in these two passages. Chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 22, verse 2 has three times descriptions of leaving the land and sacrificing the son. Chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and chapter 22, verse 17 and 18 have similar blessings. Chapter 12, verse 8, and chapter 22, verse 13 both have post-trial altars and sacrifices to God. And then there are the parallels in what's pictured here. Chapter 12 was the son leaving his father. Chapter 22 is the father preparing to leave his son. Chapter 12 was followed by Pharaoh and Sarah and that debacle with Lot leaving. Chapter 22 was preceded by Ishmael leaving and Abimelech and Sarah and that debacle. Borgman describes the big picture this way. Letting go of that which is dearest to you, beginning with your own life and name, 
is for the sake of a more expansive and inclusive way of life. As a son, Abraham begins by letting go of his father's house, but as a father, he ends up by letting go of his son. This is the biblical way of showing us God's vision for the human creation. Here is a vision of love that is rooted and finds its flowering in communal political terms. Family is important, but it is second to God's work and calling on your life. We saw a version of this in Genesis 18 when Abraham argued with God about saving more than his family, more than Lot. And we've seen this in his many encounters with Pharaoh, Abimelech, kings of Sodom, Melchizedek, and so on, that the call to Abraham extends beyond family. And we've seen Abraham leave his father, and now we're going to see him be willing to leave his son behind as well. He's willing to let go of those things, even things that are really important, through sacrifice. And this is a matter of him trusting in God and his promises. This is not purely personal. His faith is not uh, simply his own, right? But it's expansive, inclusive, and communal. The call then is to love and follow God more than his past and now his son, which represents the future. Chapter 12 is the break with the past. Chapter 22 represents the perspective or maybe the actual break with the future. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis. He talks about how the devil wants us to focus on the past and the future to a great degree rather than the present and the eternity. And that's what Abraham's doing here. He's focusing on the present moment and present faithfulness. He's still looking forward to eternity, but he's not obsessing on the what-ifs of the future, which seem to be in front of him, and he's not focused on the what-could-have-beens of the past. Soloveitchik asked this question, which of these experiences was the more trying, the first or the last? Which was more heroic, the break with one's ancestral home and family or to sacrifice one's son? Which ties were more meaningful to Abraham, the ties with his past or his future? And especially, I think we can look at this in light of his growing faith. He didn't have much faith early on, but he had enough faith to make the move that he did in chapter 12. By the time we get to chapter 22, Surely his faith has grown even more, but this is another, perhaps even more staggering task. Again, we're back to Kierkegaard. Who can figure this stuff out? All we can say is that both of these are amazing faith. We were amazed in chapter 12, and it's, you know, as or even more amazing here in chapter 22. Keep in mind also the cultural religious context here. Pagans routinely sacrificed kids, excess kids from their perspective, to appease the gods or gain their favor. So this is also a test for Abraham and an effort to distinguish Yahweh from other gods. It's also a way to get rid of child sacrifice in Judaism. The the Jews are going to struggle with a lot of stuff, including polytheism as it goes, but child sacrifice was not a big temptation for them. And you can point back to the story of Abraham to credit that. Even if this is uncomfortable as a story for someone, they can at least admit that ending child sacrifice, at least in this one religion, was a great thing. Last thing I have for you in the introduction is from Eugene Peterson in his book, The Jesus Way. And he devotes all of chapter two to this story on Abraham and connects the idea of faith, real faith, and sacrifice. So I'm going to quote from Peterson at length. He says, Faith is not commonly used in this hard-traveling way. More often it is cliched into a feeling or fantasy or disposition, a kind of wish. And so in contrast, the way of faith, real faith, requires repeated testing so that we can discern whether we are dealing with the living God 
or some fantasy, and this can only occur if the test is conducted by means of sacrifice. Sacrifice exposes spiritual fantasy as a masquerade of faith. Abraham was a veteran in the sacrifice business. A sacrificial life is the means and the only means by which a life of faith matures. By increments, a sacrificial life, an altar here, an altar there, comes to permeate every detail of life. Parenthood, marriage, friendship, work, gardening, reading a book, climbing a mountain, receiving strangers, circumcising, and getting circumcised. Sacrifice is to faith what eating is to nutrition. Sacrifice is not diminishment, not a stoical, this is the cross I bear nonsense. It does not result in less joy, less satisfaction, less fulfillment, but in more, but rarely in the ways we expect. Peterson goes on to say that the test that takes place on Mount Moriah can only be understood in the full context of Abraham's journey, the way of Abraham. And the point I like to make here is that we all want to have the faith of Genesis 22, but we don't want to do the run-up to it, the life of Genesis 12 to 21. For many of us, it's a series of small steps. For Abraham, it was a a big step to begin with, Genesis 12, probably a number of unrecorded steps that led up to that moment, and then a series of small steps after that. But we want the faith of 22 without going through the life, the way that Abraham models for us. It doesn't work that way. Back to Peterson, he says, even after many years of reading this story, I'm surprised to find myself surprised. Not a word in the narrative indicates anything like surprise. Why am I surprised in Abraham and Isaac or not? The Akita, which is the Hebrew word for the binding, was a three-day journey for Abraham, but it cannot be understood apart from a hundred years of road-tested faith that comprises the Abraham story. Abraham's faith did not always survive the test. His faith failed the test in Egypt, failed the test in Gerar, failed the test with Hagar. Untested faith does not yet qualify as faith. Untested faith, having the appearance of faith, the feeling of faith, the language of faith, may only be wishful thinking. Sometimes in Egypt with a pharaoh, at Gerar with Abimelech, and dealing with Hagar and Ishmael, the testings had exposed his so-called faith as no faith at all. But incrementally, across those miles and through those years, his faith deepened and matured. If we arrive at our Mount Moriah without having prayerfully and imaginatively participated in the decades of Abraham's testings, God seems to us to behave outrageously out of character, but not to Abraham. He is by now a veteran in the way of faith that is at the same time the way of the faithful God. And ultimately, this points forward to Jesus, who, quote, absorbed the Akita entire in his Gethsemane prayer, not my will, but thine. And so there is so much in this story. So a long introduction. We'll have just time to read a few verses today, and we'll deal with the rest of the story next week. But an amazing chapter. I encourage you to read it uh, quite a few times uh, in the next week uh, as you listen to this show and the show that will follow next. We'll take our final break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the last segment, we introduced Genesis 22, and with our remaining segment, we're going to introduce the first few verses of chapter 22. We won't get all the way through the story, or nearly so, so that will fall to next week's show. So, verses 1 and 2, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. 
The first phrase of interest is sometime later, or sometimes translated after these things. And one clue we have is from chapter 21, verse 34, it said a long time. Now, how much later? We don't know. And how much before chapter 23, verses 1 and 2's death of Sarah, when Isaac was 37? So this leads to speculation on Isaac's age, which of course then leads to inferences about his role within the story, and we'll have to talk about that later. Verse 1 mentions the word tested. Very important word here. The first thing is to note what tested means and how it's distinguished from tempted. Tempted is trying to get you to do a bad thing. Testing is hoping that you do well. And so it's a test from God to illustrate and prove and strengthen Abraham's character and his faith. So testing aims for good. You think about my students, right? I test them. I don't tempt them, right? I test them hoping that they do well on the test. James 1, 13 and 14, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Here's the kicker, though. Whether tested or tempted, both are opportunities, both are choices, but both are also opportunities to glorify God. So this is also meant to develop Abraham's character and faith. First Peter 1, 6 and 7, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a goal here of growing one's faith, and faith building is a process. You know, we can't know what we're capable of until that faith strengthens. And of course, both of this is true for us as well, that tests are there to illustrate our faith and to develop our faith. Now, for Abraham, whose faith is impressive, The test can't be too easy, or it won't show, or especially grow, that faith. And so this test also implicitly underlines the strength of Abraham's faith that he can handle something like this is amazing, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And even with temptation, that's the case. And surely with God's testing, that would be the case as well. Now, testing is the only given cause for the event at this point. But it is enough for us to conclude at this point that God is not capricious, angry, etc. Nahum Sarna says to make sure that the reader has advanced knowledge of God's purposes. Thomas Cahill says the narrator, knowing that poor human readers could never bear the suspense, tells us that this will be a test. So this is cool and and an important point. We're told to ease our unease, but Abraham is not. It gets back to what Peterson was saying in the last segment, that Abraham is not told it's a test, and he's also not surprised. Again, this underlines Abraham's faith and his relationship with God. Bringing in the reader also implies our continued effort to live vicariously through Abraham. What would I do if God asked me to do this or something really large. So verse 1 concludes with God calling Abraham, and it's seemingly from out of the blue this time. There's no connection apparently to any other episode, which has usually been the case. This is also the only time God calls him by name, and remember that his name means father of multitudes, which is ironic given what's going to follow. 
The response from Abraham wraps up verse 1, here I am. Interestingly, the very same thing he's going to say in chapter 22, verse 11. The Hebrew word here is hanemi, which means literally, behold me. And this is considered the response of a servant. Famous examples of this in Isaiah 6, verse 8, with Isaiah, Exodus 3, verse 4, with Moses, and 1 Samuel 3, three times with the prophet Samuel. This is a simple, succinct, submissive reply of one who is ready, able, willing, and available for service. So what is the call? Verse 2, take and sacrifice. He's asked to give Isaac back to God. Now, there's a big point that allows some wiggle room. It's not in the NIV or all the translations, but there's a Hebrew word here, na, which is left out in the NIV, and it means please. That changes things quite a bit, right? That the the thing that's seen as a command in verse 2 may actually be a request, albeit a strongly worded request. Think of the word hosanna, N-A, at the end of that, and it means please save us, Lord. There are other uses of this word in Genesis, and we've seen them recently, and they're translated by the NIV, Genesis 18, verses 3 and 4, for Abraham's hospitality to his guest, Genesis 9, 2 and 18, for Lot with the angels, and Genesis 24 had six of these when the servant was asking favors of Rebekah in seeking her as Isaac's wife. So with the word na in here, we're probably moving from a pure command to a strong request And again, it's within the context of God's relationship with Abraham. We'll have more to say about that later. This also gets to the idea of free will and the degrees of command. When God asks you to do something, how much choice do you really have? But the text gives us the word please, which indicates more freedom for Abraham than if it were simply a command. What do we do with this, right? Isaac is actually more God's son than Abraham's anyway. And of course, what God gives, he can reasonably take away. This underlines, provides an exclamation point for the idea that Isaac and Israel's beginnings are completely of God. And broadly, it underlines that children are given to us so that they may be returned as figurative, holy, and living sacrifices in line with Romans 12.1, dedicated to passing on what is right and holy. God gives us children. We return them to him as we try to raise them up in a way that honors God so that they'll follow God in the transmission of faith in our great and good God. Verse 2 also indicates that Abraham loves Isaac. It's the first Hebrew word use of this word, ahab, which means love. And it's different than the word for love in chapter 20, which is more about loyalty, the famous Hebrew word hased. There's actually a triad description here in verse 2 describing Isaac as your son, your only son, whom you love. Now remember that Abraham was distressed when Ishmael was sent off, but this is the first time it uses the word love. So whatever feelings that Abraham had for Ishmael, he's got that at least as much, or that's what the text gives us here with Isaac. It's also possible, and this is a good place to wrestle with it, were Abraham and or Sarah idolatrous towards Isaac? Even though Isaac was given by grace, Mm -hmm. it's still possible to confuse God and God's gifts, and we're prone to do that as well. Watchman Nee observes here, Isaac represents many gifts of God's grace. Before God gives them, our hands are empty. Afterward, they are full. Sometimes God reaches out his hand to take ours in fellowship. Then we need an empty hand to put into his. 
But when we have received his gifts and are nursing them to ourselves, our hands are full. And when God puts out his hand, we have no empty hand for him. We can dwell on his gifts at the neglect of him. The end of verse 2 provides some other details. Moriah is another name for Jerusalem. We learn this in 2 Chronicles 3.1 or are reminded of that. And it's a three-day journey away. We're told that in verse 4. So interesting that this is where Christ was sacrificed at Jerusalem, and it's a length of time until his resurrection. So some interesting parallels there. We're also told this is to be a burnt offering. So first of all, this is a figurative, a picture of the type and the extent of dedication God wants and requires for holiness. That's what the burnt offering is meant to do uh, as it appears later in Leviticus and beyond. It symbolizes total dedication, passion, and zeal. And it's supposed to be the same with us, right? It's supposed to be a burnt offering. Fire should be involved here. It's also parallel to what God does for us in Christ. We'll see this very similar language in Genesis 22, verses 12 and 16. You have not withheld your son, your only son. And that, of course, is what God has done for us, offered up Christ as an offering for us with zeal, dedication, and passion for our souls. Of course, as a practical matter, the fact that he's supposed to kill his child and burn him makes all of this a more difficult task and more difficult to rationalize how God will fix this. We'll come back to that later. So what's missing in this passage so far, at least, verses 1 and 2, is no reassurance from God given his fears. Remember we saw back in chapter 15, verse 1, that God calls himself a shield for Abraham after the battle. And so at that point, God had shown up to reassure him in the moment. There's nothing like that here. There's also no explanation from God given the questions that Abraham surely has. So this is not like Genesis 18 with a dialogue that Abraham and God had about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's also no promise of reward from God as there had been every other time in the past. Borgman says this time, the last time, and the most difficult time, there's no promise accompanying the test. Nahum Sarna, the first divine communication carried with it the promise of reward, the final one, held out no such expectation. And so Cass notes that the birth of Isaac represents the first time that the two reasons, quote-unquote, for following God are intention. Quote, the ambitious desire for the promised, now actualized blessings that he has in Isaac. And second, quote, the humble reverence for the one who calls and promises. Which of these is driving Abraham? The test will show. Would Abraham forsake the benefits of the promise? Is Abraham devoted more to Isaac or God, the giver or the gift, the creation or the creator? And then maybe the greatest irony of all, this test is necessary to show and grow Abraham as a father, that Abraham is or will continue to become fit for godly fatherhood of a child and founding of a God-honoring nation. By putting God over his child, biblically, he's showing that he is a great father and going to be the great father of a nation as well. So what is Abraham's reaction? Verse 3 opens with, early the next morning, Abraham got up and left. I love the references to early the next morning. You know, you could picture him sleeping in, trying to procrastinate or having to track back and, oh, I forgot my knife at home. Uh, There's none of that here. He's just getting after it, right? He's walking in faith. There's no sense of doubt in Abraham's action. And that starts with this reference to early the next morning. Verse 4 will say there's three days and two very long nights to think about it. 
And so you can imagine putting yourself in Abraham's shoes, the ebb and the flow of this, or is he just remarkably centered on the person and the will of God? Now, what didn't Abraham do? Well, he didn't speak. And so we have Abraham's silence. In fact, his good silence. We talked about the silence of Noah and the silence of Adam in particular and how much damage those caused. But here we have Abraham being silent, and that's actually a a wonderful thing. Why didn't Abraham question God as with Sodom and its righteous in Genesis 18? No reason is given by God, as there was with Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 18, and with Ishmael in chapter 21, and his son was seemingly innocent. So why not question God? Nahum Sarna says, most eloquent is Abraham's exceptional silence, quite out of keeping with his previous dialogues with God, and in sharp contrast to his protestations about God's justice in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, for one thing, this would be petitioning for himself rather than for others. If we interpret this as a request from God rather than a command, then he's made the decision himself. There wouldn't be the need to question, or as much need anyway. And maybe Abraham, and it's speculative, but maybe he knows that this speaks to his internal issues and uh, this idolatry, potential for idolatry, toward his son. There are also no attempts to rationalize disobedience here as well. He could have based it on God's promises, specifically through Isaac, could have quoted that back to God. He could have talked about God's name and reputation, as Moses does later. He could have cited God's character, as he does in Genesis 18, referring to him as right and just. That would have been a good line here. Could have pointed to the humanity of Abraham and prickly Isaac. Genesis 9, 5, and 6 talks about lives are not to be taken. Why, why would you have me do this? Uh, you want me to do something the pagans do? I mean, there's a number of lines of argument that Abraham could pursue, but there's nothing there. He just figures it's better to keep his mouth shut. There's no schemes. There's no argument like Sodom and Gomorrah, especially given the stakes. Uh, just faithful obedience is what we hope for and what Abraham delivers here in amazingly impressive fashion. Now, that said, Abraham still must be perplexed. How, how is God going to accomplish this? How do we square this with Genesis 9, 5, and 6? And there's going to be a future law against child sacrifice, but it's clear enough from the covenant with Noah that you're not supposed to murder people, especially something like this. And he's supposed to be the father of the Israelites. Doesn't seem like a very good example of what we would today call family values. How do you square this with God's character? But he has faith in God's promises. Remember that chapter 21, verse 12 specifies Isaac. So he doesn't have the out of another child coming from his body and from Sarah. The promises are supposed to come from Isaac, and that's the specificity of that probably gives him faith that God's going to take care of Isaac and whatever that's going to look like. There's going to be some sort of miraculous providence here, as he had perhaps seen and experienced earlier. But in any case, whatever it is, God's going to take care of business. All right, we're going to have to stop things here. We'll cover the rest of the story next week. Lord, help us to understand and embrace the faith and the walk and the process, the way of Abraham as we walk with you. Help us not to love the gifts more than the giver. Help us to accept the tests and even the temptations that come our way as an opportunity to walk more closely with you in the days to come. We thank you for Abraham's story and the chance to put ourselves in his shoes. We pray that we would be found faithful, uh, even a fraction of what Abraham shows in such an amazing way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good to be with you today. Remember the podcast or previous shows are available on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.